At Keeley Companies, culture sets them apart. They are dedicated to the safety, the well-being, and the career growth of every employee, which they refer to affectionately as the Keelians. Recently, they launched a new cultural pillar called Keeley One, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Senior Project Manager Henry Isaacs says that understanding everyone is unique and different is critical. We have to recognize our individual differences and that everyone deserves to be included and have their voice heard. For Keeley, this focus on diversity and inclusion has been a huge morale booster. It makes people more excited to come into work, which correlates to greater retention and enhances their overall culture. Now, when establishing your culture of diversity and inclusion, Henry has some great advice for us. Have an open mind and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. That's number one. Number two, take the time to truly learn, to seek wisdom around different cultures, different races, and different religions. Do the work, in other words. And then thirdly, reach out to someone different from you and be intentional in having an open and honest conversation with them. End the sentences with question marks. It's great advice from Henry, and I want to thank my friends from Keeley Companies for being proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I have a question before I bring on today's guest. The question is this, when was the last time that you tried to learn a new skill? I'm going to give you a moment to think about that. When was the last time that you tried to learn a new skill, whether that's language or a new hobby, you picked up a paintbrush, you started writing, you started drawing, you checked out karate or dance or whatever it might be. When was the last time you tried to learn a new skill? Well, today's guest is going to inspire you, I promise, to pick up that paintbrush, to try on the old karate suit to go to the ballroom dance class, to go bowling again, maybe for the first time, to check out something new to remind you not only that you can do things that you thought were difficult, but that in trying, that in attempting, you fall back in love with life. He's going to remind you and invite you to become a beginner. His name is Tom Vanderbilt. He is the best-selling author of the book Survival City, Adventures Among the Ruins of Atomic America. It's a great book. Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us. Phenomenal read. And then most recently and, and candidly, the reason why I invited Tom onto the podcast today, his most recent book is called Beginners. The Joy and the Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. My friends, today is going to be a reminder that just because you have achieved a certain age in life and you haven't yet picked up a new skill in whatever area you dreamed at one point, you might. Maybe today is the day that you will do exactly that. It's going to be an awesome conversation with a phenomenal guy, a great guest. His name is Tom Vanderbilt. So let me give you some encouragement on the front side. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. You, know, you choose which one that is. 
Grab your favorite pen, your favorite beverage, buckle up, get ready for the ride as I bring on my friend and now yours, his name, Tom Venerbilt. Tom, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, thanks a lot, John. Great to be here. Man, it is great to have you. I wish I had record about 15 minutes ago because a lot of the conversation we're going to be having today in front of our audience, we just had, it was awesome. I'm already on the phone right now with whom I consider like a friend, a, a guy I certainly look up to. I'm introduced frequently as a speaker or writer, or podcast host, or whatever the title is. What I love most about walking into a classroom in the good old days when school was in session is when you walk into a room and then a whole bunch of kids you barely recognize say, oh my gosh, it's Jack's dad. It's Patrick's dad. It's Grace's dad or Henry's dad. So one of the coolest job titles I think you and I have, we share is to be a child's father. When you have an opportunity to meet someone, whether it's a, you know, in a grocery store at a bar, when you're checking out somewhere and they say, Hey, Tom, it's Tom, isn't it? Tom, what do you do? So now my question is Tom Vanderbilt, as you describe yourself, what is it that you do? Yes, dad is a huge part of my resume. I mean, it's uh, my daughter's entering those tween years. So it's um, my responsibilities are changing in some ways and diminishing in others because uh, going through that period where she wants a little bit less to do with me, to be quite honest. Um, But then I, you know, sort of find ways to still keep that relationship um, going. But yeah, so otherwise, uh, I'm, I'm a writer and written various books. The one that people might have heard of uh, was called Traffic, which came out uh, in 2009. It was about, you know, what goes on while we're driving, this kind of crazy psychology of the, the mind of the driver, why traffic jams happen. Any question you've ever had behind the wheel of a car, I, I tried to answer, you know, using science and, and actual expertise, not not uninformed opinion. Otherwise, I'm a general writer who's always looking for interesting topics and, you know, doses of science and that. One thing that interests me in your work is how divergent and how broad, and then ultimately how specific your work gets. So I'm, I'm just going to mention some of the topics you've written on. Army uniforms, street signs, Cold War relics, Traffic patterns, Bush's secret bunker, Disney, typewriter fonts, pedestrian psychology, tennis shoes, tasting, travel, on and on and on. So rather than talking specifically about these things and how they piqued your interest, I'm going to back the train far away from Madison, New Jersey, all the way back to, I think it's Oak Forest, Illinois. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. So welcome back to the Midwest. I'm a Midwest guy myself. And so Tom, join me way back here in the Midwest for a moment. You have so much curiosity today, and I would imagine some of that was sparked as a child. Would you just talk about what growing up in Oak Forest, Illinois, was like for you? South suburbs of Chicago. I was a White Sox fan, uh, not Cubs fan. Um, it's a it's a great question. You know where where does where does curiosity come from? I think you know number one, it was just my parents um, who, who weren't you know college educated or anything like that, but. I think recognized my you know, curiosity at an early at young age and desire to learn things. So just a, a huge part of my life was spent going to the, the town library and mm-hmm. just checking out the maximum number of books every time that you could have something like 25 or something. And just, just cycling through everything from, you know, the, the Hardy boys to uh, those, those series they used to have about like, I think they're called meat Abraham Lincoln meet so-and-so and I, I, I met everyone. So, um, you know, so I would just give a huge shout out to just public libraries as, as the a place that 
has given so much to, back to people. And I, I, you know, I still go to libraries, of course, all the time. Uh, but, but at that age, with particularly formative time, I think. One of the coolest experiences of my career, and in some regards, even life, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing looking back on it. I was in Nashville, Tennessee at a book signing. A gentleman came up in line and I recognized him immediately. It was a guy named Mr. Keller who taught me junior year high school English. And man, academically, I struggled my entire life and in particular in English. And this guy, junior year, for whatever reason, saw something in me that I certainly did not see in myself. And then here he is 20 years later in a, in a line to have this author's signature in his book because in no small way, because of his belief in me, because he sparked that belief uh, that it was possible later on. Were there teachers in your life outside of your family? Were there any specific teachers that might've been the one who got behind you and put their arm around you and said, man, you have a real gift for this. So teachers, just, just a huge influence there. And, and there were certain ones and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I definitely was on sort of a track, I think. And I was always, I was always terrible at certain subjects uh, like, like math. People ask, how did you become a writer? Well, I was writing a lot when I was young. And then in college, I went, I worked at the student newspaper, which was, which was a great uh, place to really learn the, the craft um, on, on deadline. And I, I got paid for it too, which is sort of a, sort of a rare thing. And I actually ended up dropping out of the journalism program at University of Wisconsin, Madison, because I found the paper was just a more kind of authentic way to learn the, this whole craft of journalism. So I sort of jumped into some other subjects like history and political science. And I kept writing on the side, you know, well, I, I'm a freelance writer because I, I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I like to talk to other people about what they do and what they're really good at. So maybe there's a gift in trying to communicate their stories. Your, your past is so broad in some regards of what you've written on both blogs, articles, entire books. I will not go through each one, but I am going to call out a couple. In 2005, begin researching a topic that, as an author, I would not think would sell very well. It's the topic of traffic. Did you think that there was a chance in the world that a topic of traffic would become as wildly successful as your book did? I had a glimmer of that because when I started to mention the proposal I was writing and the questions I was looking into... I found that when I talk to people, particularly couples, like married couples or just, just couples, arguments would start about the thing I had brought up. So I figured, well, this is something that number one, you know, everyone has an opinion on. And number two, that people have sort of divergent opinions on. And if I could try to get to some truth within those divergent opinions, but the actual genesis was... Um, I was on a highway in New Jersey where I now live and there were uh, two highway lanes were going to shrink to one. And there was this sign that said merge left one mile. I kept driving this segment over a few days. And the first few days I got over into the lane that was going to remain open very early. Cause I thought like, well, it says merge left. So I should do that. Right. What happens is this long queue starts to form and there's this empty space in the right lane. And a few people would zoom all the way to the front and then merge at the actual merge point. After a few days, I got frustrated. I, I became one of these, what I called late mergers. And I felt really bad about this. So I started to investigate and I wondered, you know, could, has anyone thought about this problem? And, and, and indeed, you know, traffic engineers have thought a lot about it. And that's when I thought, okay, here's the subject that people are, are working on. There's the, writing these complex papers and we 
we don't know the half of it. You know, it, to us, it's just sort of a mystery and something we, we yell about. So, uh, and just to answer the question you might have, you know, under certain conditions, it actually would be better if people remained in both of those lanes into the merge point and then did a one-on-one merge. But this is where, you know, science and <laughs> rationality, you know, kind of meet up with human emotion. And, you know, what happens is people feel like other people are cheating and they get angry and they try to block lanes. And so it becomes actually less efficient than it could because it's that, you know, we're humans, we're not ants. We don't often just optimize ourselves into the most efficient patterns automatically. We have our own opinions and <laughs> desires. So speaking of opinions and desires, I am training a 15-year-old boy how to become a self-sufficient 16-year-old driver right now. And so typically we're in the middle lane on a three-lane highway when we're when we're traveling traveling that way. And what I frequently hear from him as he looks right is how unbelievably slow those people are and how to the left ridiculously fast those people are. So as you did this recut around this book traffic, why do you think it is that our psychology is always that we are the only ordinary good driver out there? The comedian George Carlin has said a version of what you're saying. He said, you know, that the road was just filled with idiots and maniacs. You know, the idiots were going slower than he was. The maniacs were going faster than he was. And why doesn't everyone go at my speed? It can be hard for humans in general to understand what other people's motivations are or why they're acting the way they're acting, especially if they're might be in, in something that's considered an outgroup, that something's a little different from what they're used to. But even the most empathetic, empathic person can you know not always understand a person's motivation. So when you transfer that idea to the road and then you have these people inhabiting private space in a public sphere, yeah. and you're cut, you're cut off from all the traditional ways you can communicate with people. You can sort of look at them, but not really. And you get a lot of chance for you know, cross signals and miscommunication. And you really don't understand why people are doing what they're doing. And I think that just, that just creates this opportunity for us to, you know, wonder what, why is everyone an idiot? Because we, who knows, you know, uh, a person may be a beginner driver. They may be very old. They may feel afraid. That's why they're driving five miles slower than the speed limit. Another person, maybe they're late for an important job interview. We just don't know. And, and the, that's what happens when you throw all of these different people together in this world of traffic. A lot of interesting things happen. And we often don't know why or anything about those people. We could spend a lot more time on traffic. We won't. I do have one more question around it. I was amazed at how eye contact can be incredibly powerful. And in, you mentioned empathetic or empathic as a wonderful way to actually connect with someone else, because when you see their eyes, it changes the way you see them. I thought that was really cool. You talked about that within the book. You also dropped this quote that I wrote down that I think affects all of us because remaining attentive is one of the most important things we can do while we are driving. So here's the quote. There's a simple mantra you can carry about you in traffic. When a situation feels dangerous to you, it's probably more safe than you know. When a situation feels safe, that is precisely when you should feel on guard. Most crashes, after all, happen on dry roads, on clear, sunny days to sober drivers. Why? You know, there's this sort of complacency effect that I think happens. And to, to use a, a concrete example here, let's talk about the modern roundabout, this traffic engineering feature, not these giant sort of traffic circles like you've seen that one in, in Paris. You go through a roundabout, you have to sort of be on guard, you have to navigate, you have to, it, it's a little bit unfamiliar, it therefore feels dangerous. However, that intersection is statistically a, a hell of a lot safer 
than a four-way signalized intersection, which we all feel quite comfortable with and we're familiar with. So to us, it seems safe and rational and normal. But you know what happens at those intersections is a lot of people tend to miss the light or go through the light and thus T-boning a, a driver uh, from the side, which is one of the most dangerous crashes you can have uh, because you know, and at full speed. So roundabouts, you know, you, you, everyone has to slow down. It's chaotic. It feels dangerous, but that's just a case where you know our, our own feelings don't often translate into the best judge of, of safety or, or risk on the road. You did a phenomenal job unpacking it in traffic. You uh, eventually graduate from that. You move away from being an author for a moment. And in 2011, I believe, you step onto the stage of Jeopardy. I'm just, I'm amazed by that, man. So how did that, how did that even come to pass? How did you get the opportunity to join Jeopardy? I think just about every Jeopardy contestant, I was someone who loved the program, you know, although I soon realized when I, when I got to the, um, the show itself and you're in what they call the, you know, the green room backstage and you're talking to your fellow contestants, I, I just suddenly felt a little bit out of my depth at home on the couch. You feel like you're the master, but these are passionate players. You know, I, I love Alex Rebecca. I love the show Jeopardy. Back to our, our task at hand. Let's talk about your most recent book that grew out of the conversation with your daughter. She is interested in learning a new skill. She wants to play a little bit of chess. T- take us forward from there. We were at a library and when there was, we were playing checkers, actually. And she saw this chessboard, which looks a lot cooler than checkers and, and said, can we play that? And I was like, well, I'd, I'd love to, but I never, I don't know how. I'm not even sure if I ever learned. And uh I felt you know, sort of bad about this. No father wants to admit that they don't know how to do something in front of their child, right? So I, I tried to learn online a little bit. There's a, a huge range of, of online learning opportunities and chess engines and chess apps. I started getting a basic grasp, but I was losing a lot. So I thought, well, if she really wants to learn, maybe I'm not the best person to teach her. So I hired this, this coach. We'll learn from someone who actually knows what they're doing rather than me trying to fumble my way through this. Of course, she quickly got better and she's, she's better to this day, but the whole experience, you know, really opened this kind of door in my mind that I, I, I couldn't really think of a similar experience I'd gone through lately where I'd learned this entirely new skill. I mentioned in the book, you know, as a journalist, I'm always learning information. I'm, I'm always having to read, you know, papers and learn about new topics, which is great, but I sort of felt like skills, I, I had left that out of my life. And, and there were a handful of things I sort of knew how to do that I was sort of doing it as hobbies or whatever. But if, it, if, the, if the chance to do something new came along, I would typically, like a lot of people, avoid it because I thought, well, I'll never get good at that. Uh, I'm too old. You know, it's, why would you start something like that in your 40s or, or 50s or, or even older? But I also thought, I thought it was a bit hypocritical because here I was telling her how important it was to learn new things you know, number one, just for the fun of it, whether, whether they become your career, you know, who, who knows, who, who cares, and also just to not be limited in what you take on, to take a broad range of things, and, and maybe one of them will stick, maybe none of them will stick, but there's just sort of a, a virtue to trying those things, and that was great advice that I was not following myself, so I thought, well, I, I should do that, and maybe I could do this book and try to explore this, this problem and, and celebrate this condition of, of being a novice, of being a beginner, which is something that, that is a lot of embarrassment attached to it, but I think is actually sort of a wonderful and necessary stage uh, in growth. So it begins with chess and it begins with a four-year-old who you may have beat once or twice, but then all of a sudden she starts smoking you and has not looked back. 
how did you choose the other four skills and talents that you began to foster? And, you know, I know many other things grew out of that, but how did you decide that it was going to be singing and it was going to be surfing and it was going to be juggling and everything else that you began picking up as you, uh, as you journeyed forward? Yeah. You know, I, I sort of tried to make a list. I started writing a list, a master list. And then I asked friends that, you know, because I was curious what, what their passions were, what their little, you know, sort of side hustles, whatever the word is you want to use. And I got all sorts of interesting replies back, you know, I mean, spelunking, cave exploring, um, you know, woodworking. And to be honest, everything sounded potentially interesting, but I really, you know, sort of just tried to go with things I authentically thought I wanted to do. Like at some point in my life, I I had expressed some interest in or had this regret that I'd never gone there. Something like drawing, you know, this is, is, as I mentioned in the book, we, we all sort of draw as children and then we're kind of steered away and we don't really, we don't really respect drawing as, as an academic subject unless it's vocational for people who are going to become artists. Uh, but I, I think drawing is an immensely useful and interesting skill, you know, but I, I was steered away from it because I, I either wasn't perceived to be good or I wasn't becoming, going to become an artist. Something like singing, you know, I think again, all of us as children sang and some of us continue to do so maybe in the privacy of our own home. That, that was my case, like, like a lot of people in the car, in the shower. Yeah. I felt that it brought me pleasure uh because you know how how could it not but i also worried that i wasn't very good at it which sort of potentially diminished the pleasure i was getting from it and you know motivation is such a huge part of learning i really wanted to to try things that i would enjoy the practice of um Mm -hmm. as as well as the skill like I, i didn't want to have to dread my monday morning drawing lesson and then i wanted to make them things that were i could do in New York City, where I was living at the time, to not make them sort of too exotic, and then to make them sort of simple yet complex. I mean, when I say simple, you can learn to sing, you know, pretty quickly. You can learn to draw pretty quickly, and then you, your skills deepen over time. But as opposed to something like learning to fly, which would which would be a whole long process. Tell me why you think it is that children are drawn to these ideas of trying new things and and tripping and falling and standing back up and taking the next right step forward. While we adults, we pull away from it. And if we fail, we typically don't return to it. Children before a certain age, they have this wonderful lack of self-consciousness. I mean, they, they in some ways don't know whether they're good or bad and they don't care. And they just sort of plunge into activities. And I, I was told by a number of instructors in different sorts of fields that that was one of the things they enjoyed about teaching children was they, they didn't come in with this huge set of goals and ambitions and, and to, to get through something quickly and this desire to instantly master something um, that they were just more focused on, on having fun, essentially, which yeah. is key component of learning, you know, you know, play, you know, it should not be understated how useful it is to helping to learn something, but adults often, you know, seem to be treating these things as, as a job because that, that's what we know. We know our jobs as adults. We know how to, you know, drop lists, make plans, execute those plans. We've sort of forgotten a little bit about the fun play side of things. And, but going back, and one of the things I did in the book was visit this, this fascinating research center called the Infant Action Lab at New York University. And they study how infants learn to move, to crawl, walk. Um, and so they, they, they set up these, it looks like a daycare center sort of, and they just have kids moving around all day and they, they take thousands of hours of footage and they, they've, Observe some really interesting things. I mean, number one, kids fall a lot, like upwards of 70 times per hour. Um, and, you know, they, 
So I, I always think like if I if I went to a surf lesson and fell 70 times an hour, I've, I've fallen probably 20 times in an hour. But um, if I fell 70 times an hour, I would probably give up. Uh, but but kids, you know, they, they don't even they're not even aware they're falling. They just get back up. Um, they, they also observe that these kids moving around this room, they didn't often seem to have strict goals in mind. They, you, you might think that if a kid's parent was there holding a toy, that would be a really strong attractor for that child. But often they, they didn't really care. They were, they were, they had their own agenda, which was just to explore the room. And it, so they ended up doing these random walks that if you tried to chart it, made no sense. They were just a huge amount of curiosity. What's interesting is you know, learning to walk, one of, the, one of the benefits is that it, it helps your curiosity. You can, you can discover more things. You can get to more things. There were a number of other lessons I, I took from that, but this idea that it felt very pressure-free that, you know, when I went to my first lesson, I was uh, in singing or surfing, I was number one, nervous as hell. And number two, I, I was already thinking about like standing on the surfboard or hitting a certain note. Like I was already putting this pressure on myself that I, I need to, I need to advance. Um, and, and that was just counterproductive at, at the end of the day. So I, I think we could all learn a lesson from our, from our own childhood. You, brought up several times in the book, some of the benefits of being a lifelong learner. And to be honest, many of them surprised me, even this idea of community. If you're learning how to draw or sing or be on a surfboard or juggle, or even you had to relearn how to make your wedding ring, you know, I mean, you had to do all these tasks, but none of them were learned by yourself. All of them were requiring community, uh, fellows around you, other, other beginners, Talk about the power of community as you as you journey forward. It seemed like one of the great gifts of of what you experienced in that in that practice. Yeah, absolutely. And it really wasn't something I, I went into this project thinking about at all. And um, there's a great book. I think uh, I think it's called We Should Hang Out, Man, <laughs> which which you know talks about um, particularly for men as they get older. You know, you sort of have this set of friends that that you've made. But then what happens is, you know, we get busy with our careers and, and families and things like that, or people move away. And, it, it, you know, sort of your, your friend pool begins to sort of, uh, there's this process of attrition that sort of happens, or you just can't see people as much. So I think what, what happens is there are fewer social outlets. And that's one thing I, I sort of realized going in was suddenly I was meeting a lot of people that I probably wouldn't have met in, in any other way, as, especially as someone who works from home, uh, even before the pandemic meeting these people. And I, and I found some really inspiring people that became, you know, sort of personal uh, role models in a sense and made, and made the challenges I was going through seem very small by comparison. Just, just one example, there was in, in the choir I joined after I tried to learn to sing, I thought I should, well, maybe a choir would be a great place to try the singing out. Uh, one day a guy named uh, Adrian showed up and he was a, a British guy and we just started chatting and I sort of expected to hear, well, yeah, I've always liked singing or, you know, I, I want to check this out. And when I asked him, you know, why did you join? And he said, well, my speech therapist thought it would be a good way to help me recover speech. And what had happened uh, was Adrian had suffered a br uh, brain tumor and then had to have surgery, you know, incredibly risky and complex surgery. One thing that happened as a result of that was he lost his ability to speak. And one day he was in the hospital, a friend brought a, uh, an iPod or, or something, and it had the the British band uh, Oasis on it, which is his favorite band. And he started playing one of their songs and out of nowhere, Adrian starts singing along. He, he couldn't say a word, but he suddenly you know, begins singing. And you know, it has to do with the idea that, that uh, 
generated speech in the brain comes from a different place than remembered speech. That, that remembered speech part was still functioning and he could access that. Um, and there's a whole school of uh, this speech therapy, song music therapy that people argue that, that singing can be a way back to learning how to speak again. And, and in fact, now he's, he's you know, fairly fluent and all seems to be doing well. He's a father now. So you know, his, he's managed to turn his life around it and just singing for him was just one, one way to re, you know, re, recover some of those things he had lost. And so I, I just heard that. I was like, wow, I, you know, I, I just want to sound better in the shower. And you know, yeah. he, he's like, he's got this major you know, life struggle going on. So people like that were just incredibly inspiring to me and made it, you know, think that made, made me realize that everyone's got their own reason for being there in that room, which, which I found, you know, sort of powerful as well. Well, their own reason for being there. You also mentioned this idea of, yeah, growing in knowledge, having fun, but also that learning a new skill, growing in this talent, whatever it may be, is a little bit like falling in love again. So to talk about the similarity between falling in love when you're dating someone and learning how to foster and then grow in this new skill set. You know, there's this amazing, you know, your, your brain just feels like it's on fire. There's just a, the neurotransmitters are firing. Uh, you, you have you know, met someone that has, has changed your world. You're obsessed by them. You start, you know, you sometimes invent like a little language together. You have little pet phrases for each other. You're, you're seeing the world in a new way because you've met this, this person. But, you know, in the beginning, especially, it just can't think of anything else. And I, I feel like becoming a beginner in something that you you like, or you think you're going to like, you know, that may become a passion. I don't want to get too hung up on that has to be a passion, but surfing, for example, was something I thought, wow, that looks so cool. I'd love to do that someday. And just the minute I did it, I just felt like, wow, what, you know, why did it take me so long to do this? And it, it was all I could do not to try to go there every day. And, you know, I was, I was suddenly buying these surf magazines. I was trying to learn all the lingo. I was, I think my you know, wife thought I was going to like, you know, grow my hair out or something and start living in a, a van by the beach. And what was happening, it was, you know, my brain and body were moving in entirely new ways on those ways. And I was having these, these amazing experiences that were incredibly novel to me. I mean, and often it really didn't even have to involve surfing. I mean, just, just floating on the board in the ocean like a 40 minute drive from my house um, as dolphins were sort of like cresting the water nearby. That just, it's like, wow. Okay. So I, I was sort of in love with surfing and, and I think there was a very similar process going on, you know, not quite as deep, but when you fall in love with a new person and, and the sheer amount of novelty there. I, and I, I mentioned a study in the book that I found very interesting that they looked at couples um, who had been together a long time and they found that learning a new skill together was one way that couples could sort of re-energize their own relationship because they were, they were experiencing this, this novelty together and those positive feelings about the novelty together. And then it's sort of, they could, they could use that positive charge and it, it sort of reflected back on their own relationship and the way they felt toward each other. You know, it, it's just a way to constantly keep life interesting, to recharge your, to, and to expand your sense of self. When I read your book, and it came across that section. That's actually something I took notes on and made a commitment to sign my wife and I up for ballroom dancing. Hey, great. We have a wonderful marriage. I'm wild about her. And I think, although I may not know for sure, but I'm pretty sure she's wild about me too. 
but there's no doubt that when you are doing something together, that you're learning this thing together, that you are connecting together, you're having fun together, you're feeling purpose and passion for something together. You're also feeling purpose and passion and fun for one another. So that was a really cool takeaway from your book. And final question around this before we wrap up with the Live Inspired 7. Tom, there are many of our listeners right now who might be thinking at age 78 or age 28 that they are entirely too old to begin. Whatever that thing is, what, what would you say to one of us right now who are thinking, I, I, I'm too old, I'm too busy, I've got too many irons in the fire and I have no idea where even to begin, so I won't start. Those are all very real obstacles that I, I sometimes encounter myself, but I, I say you're, it's never too late. You're not too old. There's always time. Speaking of chess, like there was this wonderful series called The Queen's Gambit on, on Netflix. And you ask people like, oh yeah, I saw that. And I, I like, do you have any interest in, in playing chess? They're like, no, I don't have the time. I'm like, well, you, you just spent like six hours watching The Queen's Gambit. You could actually learn how to play chess in that same amount of time. So I think sometimes that's just an, an excuse we could squeeze in the time, especially nowadays where there's so much learning that can be done when you want it. Like you don't always need to go to a class or have an instructor right there. You can go online, sort of sneak it in. Um, on the age question, you know, obviously the body does begin to sort of, uh, you know, slow and, and the brain does as well. But I met people uh, in this uh, course of work on this book that were much older than I am that were often better in the skill. I met a person doing long distance uh, ocean swimming. The woman crushed me and I was just, I felt, you know, very humbled. <laughs> and, but this was also inspiring because she had only learned to swim in her seventies mm. properly. And for her, it, it, it was an exciting new adventure she was opening. She, she was now planning swim trips around the world. And it would, be, it would have been so easy for her to say, you know, no, that door is closed to me because she, she went to the local gym, they didn't even have adult instructors. They figured, well, if, if you didn't learn when you were a kid, why, why would you even bother? You know, like the, the phrase adult beginner, you know, is sometimes a, a challenge that people have to get around. The only limit apart from your own body is your own imagination. And just the great thing about, you know, it's, it's not, just don't treat it like a job, like with a performance review and that you have to, um, put it on your resume that you have to master it just just have fun and there you know, the benefits will come whether they're even about the skill itself is sort of beside the point there might be other benefits that you're not even aware of and that's what you can really bring in i think just become a beginner i have a ledger full of quotes from the book but i think where i will leave it right now is with this one we often interrupt people at the beginner stage forgetting that talent can take time uh, it, it's really well said, and it's a challenge for all of us to recognize that just because we haven't done something yet doesn't mean we can't do it going forward. Tom, we, we end every episode on our Live Inspired podcast with seven rapid fire questions. So we're going to roll in right now with Tom Vanderbilt with these seven questions. This first one for you, a voracious, not only author, but reader yourself might be difficult to answer, but here we go. Tom, what is the most impactful book you have ever read? Rapid fire. I feel like I'm back on Jeopardy. I'm I'm, I'm breaking up a sweat here, but <laughs> Jeopardy. One of the most impactful books over the last few years, because I was thinking about surfing, uh, was this book called Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. It's it's a memoir of this this New Yorker magazine journalist learning to surf. But it's even if you don't care about surfing at all, it's just a book that will just make you feel alive. So I, I would I would just recommend that Barbarian Days. 
Awesome. Maybe not the most impactful of all time, but it's what's on my on my mind right now. <laughs> Perfect. And I think that ultimately that's the idea. What is touching your heart right now? What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a young White Sox fan growing up on the South Side that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think it's it, maybe it's that thing that I was trying to reawaken with this book, the, the idea of, let's call it promise that, you know, there are, there are new that life is full of these new chapters to constantly be written. I mean, you know, as a kid, I just had endless vistas in front of me that I thought, you know, I could go anywhere and do anything. And then as a middle-aged person, I felt I had closed a lot of those doors and I thought, well, this is the person I'm always going to be right now. Uh, but then working on this book, I found that I was able to, you know, sort of sort of open some of those doors again and bring this kind of child, a little bit of the childlike wonder uh, back into my life. Beautiful. Thank you. If your home caught fire and your family's out, Jancy's out, everybody's safe, the animals are safe, and you have an opportunity to run back into the house and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? Probably grab, you know, like a photo, the photo album, the family photo album, because uh, a lot of those were taken before uh, digital age, so they're irreplaceable. If, if you could sit on a bench, whether that's uh, somewhere in New York or California or anywhere in the world, and have a nice, long conversation on a gorgeous day with anyone, living or dead, who would you like to have that conversation with? Bar- Barack Obama comes to mind, let's say, because, I mean, not just because he's a White Sox fan but and a, mid- <laughs> and a mid- Midwesterner, but, you know, just, just someone who coming of age at the same time, but someone who's just had such a, such obviously a different experience in life, but, but just, just the things he's seen, the things he's thought about, you know, I would just, uh, I think even politics aside, he's, he's an interesting person that, but yeah, there's probably a hundred people I could name, but, but let's say Barack. Perfect. What's the best advice that you've ever received, Tom? Just kind of like career advice, but it also probably applies to other parts of life, but an editor once, he gave me an assignment to write an article and he said, let me give you two pieces of advice. Number one, don't try to write a book, which is something that writers often do. They're, they're asked to write a 1500 word article and they just go nuts. And the second thing was have fun with it. So what happens is it's almost a related process. I get this assignment, I go nuts. I start over-researching it. I think it's the most important thing in my life. And then I, I stress about it. I, and I, I turn this 4,500 word article that's way too long way too serious and doesn't have the kind of flair they were looking for. So, I mean, that, I always remember that as, as career advice. I don't know if that's applicable to other people that aren't writers, but let's go with that. It's hugely applicable in particular, the second piece, have fun with it. It's really what the book and as I read it is really all about, man, have fun with this thing, life, what a gift. What would you tell your 20 year old self? You know, that it will be okay. I think uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, I was a pretty angst ridden, 20 year old, I think. And there, you know, I've read a lot of this interesting research that talks about the early fifties as a particularly, um, which, which is where I am now and, and particularly happy time of life. And so I'm actually quite, you know, pleased to be here to have made it this far and to be in good health. It wasn't always clear at that point. Final question, Tom Vanderbilt. It has been said that all great people, all great leaders, all great writers, all great thinkers can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I'll say he was a good uh, listener, which which I think, you know, is n- number one, that's really the key, I think, to what I do uh, for my job, which is, you know, I have to, I have to write, but I really have to listen to other people. And then, I, I, but not just career-wise, you know, just 
listening as as a skill that's perhaps underrated you know listening to your to your loved ones to your friends um and what a worthy thing to strive for and as you consider the next topic you want to write on and teach about honestly i could think of few more powerful and more needed right now than listening in a world that is so divided and so sure of itself everywhere we go we're ready to make the argument to be um a passionate listener is a wonderful way not only to understand someone else's argument, but to be able to articulate that to an audience that is longing to learn more. So Tom Vanderbilt, I want to thank you for being an awesome listener. I want to thank you for reminding us that it's not too late to begin. And I want to thank you also for reminding us that in spite of our past, the best days remain in front of us. So my friends, that is Tom Vanderbilt, prolific author, great man, good friend, and now yours as well. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, on the front side of this interview with my friend Tom Vanderbilt, I told you that you were going to learn again about the power of beginning. The power of beginning. Tom picked up some skill sets, some talents, some traits that probably before he started, he had no idea he could do. Like singing, like surfing, like drawing, juggling. Things that he had not done before his daughter taught him that, hey, dad, you can still do amazing things if you try, if you start, if you begin. And in doing so, he learned not only that he could do these things, he could do them fairly well, but more than all of that, he could have a great time in doing so. He could fall back in love not only with his daughter, not only with these traits, not only with these skills and talents, but with life itself. You know, we, we live in this time where there has never been greater access to pick up a new hobby. It's right in front of you. It's a click away, my friends. And yeah, we also live in a time with a little bit of headwind, with a little bit of divisiveness, with a little bit of struggle and anxiety, and for many of us, despair. I encourage you, after listening to the conversation with Tom Vanderbilt, to boldly step forward into the remaining limitless possibility of your life. Whatever that little thing that has been whispering to you lately, hey, let's try this, whether it's painting or dancing or whatever that thing might be, rather than just let it whisper to you and say, well, I'm too old, I'm too busy, I'm too whatever the excuse might be. My encouragement is to take the next right step, stay within your circle, and recognize that just because you haven't done it yet or haven't done it lately doesn't mean you can't do it going forward. So my friends, I thank you again for being part of our Live Inspired community. If you uh, haven't yet subscribed to the Live Inspired podcast, why not do so right now? It's an awesome way to ensure that this thing ends up right where it should in your listening device week after week to make sure you don't miss a single episode of the podcast. So wherever you're tuning in, subscribe to this. And if you haven't yet rated the show, what an awesome opportunity for you to uh, throw up a little bit of love our way in doing so, not only is it a way for you to celebrate your friendship, your uh, your admiration of what we're trying to do here at Live Inspired, but also it's a really cool way that we can tell others that what we're doing here is pushing back against the headwind of challenges, reminding others, whether they know of our work yet or not, that the foundation in their life remains firm, that the headwinds may be real, but the best days, even still, are in front of us. So thank you for being part of our community for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day, beginners. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. 
Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture, focus on people, and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at keeleycompanies.com.